Well, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, we started talking last time about uh, the offices of the church, and uh, we saw that there are two, uh, two offices of the church, and that is the office of pastor and the office of deacon. And uh, we focused last time on pastors, and we'll continue that focus uh, tonight. Uh, Last time we focused on the three words that the New Testament uses to describe the office of pastor. Uh, One is the word elder, or presbyteros. Uh, One is the word uh, overseer, or bishop, which is episkopos, which is where the uh, episcopalian comes from. Um, and then one is the word shepherd or pastor, which is poimain. Um, all three of those words are used interchangeably. They have slightly different meanings, but they all refer to the same office, just with a different emphasis uh, on what that office is for, what pastors are supposed to do. And so uh, we talked about that last time. At the, the pastor, the elder, the overseer's main responsibility is to Uh, the ministry of the word and prayer like the apostles in Acts chapter 6. And so we talked about all that last time. Um, And now tonight, uh, I want us to focus on the qualifications for pastors that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is another place, by the way, where it becomes really clear that the two uh, offices of the church are the office of pastor and the office of deacon because uh, Paul lays out the qualifications for uh, both of those offices here in this chapter for pastors in verses 1 to 7 and then for deacons in verses 8 to 13. Um, If there was another office, we would assume he would have talked about that here and given the qualifications for that, but there's not. Those are the two. All right, so so tonight we're going to talk about what Paul says are the necessary qualifications for an overseer, for a pastor, for an elder. Um, This is really important because, um, well, for a lot of reasons, but um, one of the reasons it's important is because, especially the way that um, we in Baptist churches, you know, um, call pastors, we usually appoint a search committee. The church search committee interviews people, uh, looks at resumes, maybe goes and hears some people preach, and then, um, you know, invites a pastor to come in view of a call and so on. Um, And it's very difficult. If you've ever been on a pastor search committee, you could probably testify to this. It's very difficult, uh, I would assume. I've never been on a committee, but I've been on the other side of it, right? And And I just know how hard any kind of job interview is. And a pastor is way more important than just you know hiring somebody to do a job at a desk somewhere. Um, the that it's very difficult to know what to look for, what kind of questions to ask, how to sort through all the different resumes and whatnot. But one of the things that we have to do, uh, one of the one of the few things that the New Testament tells us we need to do when we're considering somebody as a candidate for uh, the office of pastor is we need to make sure that they meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. All right, so this is a really important passage. Uh, so here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, this, the saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, um, there's a certain sense in which when you read a list of qualifications like that, everybody says, I don't qualify. <laughs> I don't feel like I measure up. Um, if, you, uh, if you read a list of qualifications like that and think, yes, that describes me to a T, then there's probably something wrong you know, <laughs> with you on the other side. So um, nobody feels, um, you know, Worthy when you read a, a, a list like that. But then, on the other hand, and, and the, these two things sound contradictory, but I don't think they are. On the other hand, there's almost not anything really extraordinary about this list. You know, it doesn't require them to, you know, fast three times a week or have memorized the entire Old Testament or anything like that. I mean, it basically requires them to be people of good conduct and character. Um, and then there's one skill that they're supposed to have, and that's, that's pretty much it. Um, but everybody in any kind of position of leadership, and uh, we talk about this often uh, in terms of politicians and um, athletes, uh, uh, not always, but usually to our dismay, anybody in a position of leadership is going to influence and model a certain kind of lifestyle and behavior to the people who are looking up to them. And so you want to put the right kind of people in those positions um, so that the direction everybody else is heading who's following them is the right one. And so these qualifications, just as far as a big picture, uh, are mostly normal Christian behavior standards. This is the kind of person we all want to strive to be, right? And, and again, none of us feel like we measure up, um, but uh, these are the qualifications. Now, the first thing he says is that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, that's significant because, uh, I don't hear this as much anymore, but um, it it seems like it, it used to be that um, most of the time if you heard a pastor uh, tell his story of how he was called to ministry, somewhere in that story would be a, a season where he said he, he ran from the call or he didn't want to do it. Right? Um, and I, and uh, when you hear that pattern often enough, you start to think, well, if I didn't ever run from that call, then maybe I'm not really called. <laughs> maybe there's something wrong with me. In fact, I think I have at least one pastor friend who felt that way. He said, you know, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to do it. So I had to talk to 
you know, my pastor and say, is that, is, is that allowed? Is that okay? Uh, well, Paul says it is, right? It is okay to desire this task, to um, aspire to this office. It, it's, um, there are plenty of people who, when uh, they sense God's call, they try to uh, go the other way at first, but that's not everybody, and that's not a that's not a necessary prerequisite, right? You don't have to have tried to get out of it in order to be genuinely called. You can actually want to do it, and that's not a bad thing, right? And um, but he says that it's a noble task that they uh, that they are aspiring after. It's not a it's not a normal one. It's a noble one, and because it's a noble one with extra uh, accountability and responsibility and, and all the rest. Um, therefore, he says, an overseer, that's the word he's using here, but again, means pastor, means elder. An overseer must be above reproach. Right? That's sort of the umbrella. Um, and that's where almost all of us, you know, want to take a hard right. <laughs> I don't know if that's me, right? Because we all know things that we are guilty of, that we're embarrassed of, that we're ashamed of, that we've done at one time or another. Um, but the the emphasis here, I mean, that's true of Paul too, right? I mean, Paul had been a persecutor of the church at one time, um, you know, railing against Jesus. Um, the emphasis here is on the, uh, I remember talking to a, a friend and mentor of mine about this, uh, I think fairly on early on in, in ministry, I was just wrestling with, you know, I just don't feel qualified and whatever because of this, that, and the other thing, and and he just said, you know, what I'm worried, what th- I'm worried about, basically, what this is worried about is what kind of person are you right now? Right? Not all the things you've ever done, you know, but what kind of person are you right now? Are you a person of good character? Are you above reproach? Do people, um, you know? Uh, see in you someone who is respectable, somebody who they would be willing to follow, that kind of thing. Um, and so it's, he's not talking about perfection. He's not talking about sinlessness. We've just uh, studied in Romans 7 Paul's own struggle with his sin. Uh, he's not talking about anything like that. But um, it does need to be a person that has no uh, obvious current character flaws that people would say, I can't believe you hired that guy. I mean, people don't even trust that guy. People don't even respect that guy. Why would you hire him or call him to be uh, in charge of, of an entire church? Right? Um, so you've got to be above reproach, I mean, of, of, of good character, no major public character flaws, right? And then he says, the husband of one wife, which literally means um, a one-woman man, and there's been debate about what that means. Is that just ruling out um, polygamy? Uh, you know, does that mean, uh, you know, that's on, on, you know, one option. Does that mean, like, he could never have been divorced or even remarried if his wife died? All those kind of things. Um, he, the, the short answer, without getting into all the debates and all the different options, the short answer is he's saying he needs to be a, a faithful man, a faithful husband, right? The Bible makes provision for people to be remarried if their spouse dies or if they're divorced under certain conditions. Um, the emphasis is he's, he's in his 
uh, married life, he is above reproach. In his married life, he is a faithful husband. He's a one-woman man. He's got to be sober-minded, right? Um, it can, that word that's translated sober-minded, it can just mean sober, uh, but when it's applied to your whole life, um, it means, you know, that you have a sober outlook on life and sober behavior, that you are a reasonable, rational, calm person, you know, uh, self-controlled is the next thing that he says, um, you don't want somebody uh, leading who can't control himself, who can't, um, doesn't manifest that fruit of the Spirit. Somebody who's respectable, right? That seems obvious for anybody you're putting in a leadership position. You want it to be somebody that people can respect because people don't follow people they don't respect. So he needs to be respectable. He needs to be hospitable. Willing to open his home to other people and and uh, show uh, generosity and compassion and kindness in that way, and then uh, able to teach. That's the one skill that's required. Um, you don't have to be you know an excellent organizer. You don't have to be uh, you know event planner, but you do have to be able to teach because that's your job, right? Your calling is to the ministry of the word. And if you can't explain the Bible to people, you're going to have a really hard time doing that. So you got to be able to teach. And then he says, not a drunkard. It doesn't say can't drink, but he does say you can't be a drunkard. You can't be addicted to much wine. Uh, obvious reasons for that, right? Why you wouldn't want somebody who's a drunkard uh, serving as a pastor. Not violent, but gentle. Um, so you don't want somebody who's looking for a fight. Uh, because if you know you've been around church life long enough, you know that uh, unfortunately there are plenty of opportunities that come up. If you're a fighter, uh, you're going to end up in some fights. And the last thing you need is the pastor, uh, either physically or verbally, slamming somebody. You know, at a church business meeting, you don't don't need to do that. So uh, you don't want somebody who's violent. You want somebody who's gentle. Somebody who's not quarrelsome, right, who doesn't look for a fight, doesn't enjoy a fight. Um, uh, I think it can also be translated peaceable, right? Same idea. Um, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Um, the love of money is something that um, the New Testament often associates with false teachers, right? Where they use their position of spiritual leadership in order to take advantage of people and squeeze more money out of them. They're, they're in it all for the financial gain. Uh, Balaam, the false prophet in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, is, is one of the classic examples of that. Um, and so if you... Uh, somebody who's a lover of money is going to be uh, sorely tempted to misuse his office in various ways um, in order to get more money, right? You can uh, compromise your message, compromise your calling, compromise in all kinds of ways in order to try to get more money uh, into the offering plate and into your pocket. And that's that's bad. That's real bad. So you don't want somebody who somebody who's really concerned about having a lot of money probably needs to find a different job, right? Um, and then he says, verse four, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So um, 
this means it's important if um, if somebody who feels called to be a pastor has a family. He doesn't. This is not saying he has to have a family, but if he does have a family, then he needs to manage it well because. Like we all know, if you can't manage something small, you're probably not going to be able to manage something big that's just like it, right? If you can't run a 40-acre farm, nobody's going to put you in charge of a 400-acre farm because you're just going to make the same mistakes on a bigger scale with the bigger one, right? So if you can't uh, manage your own house, if you can't, you know, uh, teach and train your own children, it doesn't mean your children are going to be perfect, right? Um, But... If you're, you know, just letting them run hog wild and don't do anything to teach them or train them, well, then uh, what are you going to do when things in the church aren't going right and you need to, you know, exercise oversight like pastors are supposed to do? What what are you going to do? You don't even know how to do it with your own kids. How are you going to take care of the church? That's Paul's point, right? In verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So it's important to look at a man's family and the way that he uh, handles his family, um, the way that he shepherds his family to see whether or not he's qualified to shepherd the church because the church is just a big family, right? I remember, um, I can't remember who I heard this from, but um, somebody saying that um, being a pastor is a little bit like being a dad of a family that's just too big, you know? (laughs) <laughs> and that's kind of true. I mean, it, I mean, the church is a family, right? And um, and the, the being the being a pastor feels like being a dad of a family, right? That you're sort of the uh, head of the household, so to speak, and sort of in charge of keeping contact with everybody and keeping everybody on the same page and moving the same direction. And and uh, so, if you can't be a good dad in your own house, you're probably not going to be a good dad, so to speak, in the church house right in the the church family and then he says verse six he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil if you've just become a christian and all of a sudden you get elevated to this position where you're giving spiritual direction to people who've been christians for a long time and you've been a christian for about 30 seconds uh you're going to be prone to uh pride and with pride comes fall and destruction, right? So um, it's very dangerous, uh, although sometimes it's tempting, right? It's very dangerous to elevate somebody to that level of leadership who's not had time to grow and mature and learn and sit under the teaching of others before they are uh, ready to teach themselves. Um, And then verse 7 kind of comes back to where we started Uh, though with a little bit different emphasis, it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Meaning, even non-Christians, right? those are the outsiders, even non-Christians who know him um, should have good things to say about him. Um, It was interesting, I was was talking with my um, students at Full Armor this morning about the way Luke describes... Um, Paul's arrests and and trials in the book of Acts um, because he over and over points out that even though Paul got arrested and had to appear before this guy and then had to appear before that guy and give a defense and and then he got a you know 
he got thrown in jail when he was in Philippi, and, and over and over and over, through all these things where it looks like Paul is just a guy you don't want to have close connections with. He just keeps getting in trouble, and his name keeps being dragged through the mud. But what Luke does over and over again is he shows us uh, that Paul was falsely accused. Uh, he was beaten and imprisoned even though he was not condemned for any kind of crime. And even when he's arrested in Jerusalem and has appeared before the governor and eventually before the king, they say over and over, this guy's not done anything wrong. He's not done anything deserving of death. It's just a religious squabble that he's on the wrong side of that people are upset about. Um, You know, even uh, I think it's King Agrippa uh, and maybe some others say toward the end, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could have gone free. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. And so... um, even though from one angle it looks like well, Paul didn't have a good reputation with outsiders. Look, he keeps getting thrown in jail. Well, he did, though, right? When, when his case was presented, even before some of the highest leaders of the Roman Empire, they said, he's a decent guy. He's not guilty of anything serious. We don't even know why he's here. Um, and so this is not, verse 7 is not to say you can't have any critics or can't have any detractors, or can't have any people who don't like you, because that's not true of anybody, right? Everybody's got enemies. Everybody's got people who, you know, uh, have a grudge against them for one reason or another. But in general, right, in general, um, pastor needs to be well thought of by those outside of the church as well as inside the church. Otherwise, the ministry of the church to those outside is going to be compromised, right? And that's part of what we're here for is to reach other people. So um, all those are important things uh, for us to be aware of, right? And for you to hold me accountable to and um, for us always to be considering um, anytime any one of us is in a position where uh, we might be called upon to, to give input about, you know, calling a pastor to another church or whatever. Um, I mean, you might have a friend on a pastor search committee call you up. I've never been on a search committee. What do I do? First thing you tell them, read 1 Timothy 3, right? Pray <laughs> and read 1 Timothy 3. Uh, that's the best place to start. There are a lot of places you can go from there, but there's none any better places you can start than there. So uh, comments, questions?